Hurricane season is less than two weeks away. La Nina is history, and El Nino is coming on fast. What long-range forecasters think will happen this time around, and the National Hurricane Center has a new director. Who will be leading us through the season, and what changes, if any, we could expect to see? This is NTWC Live. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the first NTWC Live for the 2023 hurricane season. It is so good to be back once again with a, a full season of uh, exciting programs. I think it's going to be a great year. We're going to change the format up a little bit this year to, to keep it hopefully more interesting for you, keep the flow going better. Uh, it's going to be a good year. As always, we want to thank our sponsors who make this event a possibility. We couldn't be here without the sponsors. And of course, first and foremost is USAA. They have been with us from the very beginning. And USAA, we appreciate all that you do. The South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau, the home of the National Tropical Weather Conference. It was so good to see so many of you there on South Padre Island just a few weeks ago in person and finally meet people that we see on here week in and week out. Thank you for that. The Weather Company, Weather Boy, Black Magic Design, Whataburger, the Port of Brownsville, all part of what we do at NTWC Live. We appreciate that. Also good to have Dr. Hal Needham back from Geotrek Podcast and CNC Catastrophe. Uh, Dr. Hal, good to have you along today. And of course, our master of ceremonies, our host, our moderator, uh, who's been with us from the very beginning of the National Tropical Weather Conference, former director of the National Hurricane Center, Mr. Bill Reed. Good morning, Bill. Morning, Tim. We're living proof that we don't practice age discrimination in this group. <laughs> We're all here and all doing our thing. Good to have you along, guys. And, and I think, you know, I think it's going to be a, a, a fun, well, fun is a relative word, season. For this program, I think it's going to be fun. Uh, tropically, we've got a lot to talk about, but I think, Bill, we've got a lot of good plans ahead for uh, our programs coming up and starting off today with a, with a great program today. Yep, we, we're expanding. We're getting a, a mix of new people and some uh, return people in there, and I think the uh, more conversational and interview type uh, uh, format uh, that we're going to try. I think people are going to find that very interesting. Uh, to start us off, uh, it seemed very appropriate that we have the new director of the National Hurricane Center, Dr. Michael Brennan. Uh, my recollection, uh, Mike has been at NHC for 15 years, uh, first as a hurricane specialist and then uh, as the branch chief in charge of the specialist unit. Uh, Mike got his degrees in meteorology from North Carolina State, and uh, it seemed like there was three or four of you NC Staters there when, when I was there before, and I, 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 I don't know, you have more than that now, Mike? We still have a pretty good contingent, yeah, so we've got uh, several of us here, and good, good folks from a lot of different places. So. Yeah, I was the only Aggie at the time, which, which, which I, was, I tried to correct, but I never got any applications from any Aggies to show that I can be biased when I select. <laughs> you have any there now? Yeah, yeah, we got at least a couple. Yeah, we have like two or three that uh, that I can think of off the top of my head. So there may be even more. No. Yeah, that's great. That is that is great. Okay, well, uh, I'm going to let you do your, your talk there. We might interrupt you with some questions as we go along, and uh, if that's okay, and we'll see how it goes. Sure. Thanks, Bill. I'm going to try to put my screen into PowerPoint mode. Hopefully you're able to see everything okay. Got it. Great. Um, so yeah, feel free to interrupt. I can't see the uh, the presentation or I can't see uh, folks on the uh, on the Zoom while I've got the slides up, but just just yell if you have any uh, have anything and if there's any anything you want to stop and chat about. Uh, this is meant to be pretty informal. I'm going to cover a few different things here today as we roll toward the 2023 hurricane season and just a uh, just a couple of weeks from now the official start here as we get towards june one in the atlantic we've already started the east pacific season a couple days ago uh, i want to cover a few things that are new and changing for 2023 many of you may have seen all these but these will be good reminders and and maybe new information for some folks um, the biggest thing that's changed is something we've already started as of monday the tropical weather outlook is now going to go out to five from five days to seven so we'll have two-day probabilities of formation and seven-day probabilities of formation. We haven't had anything in the seven-day outlook yet, so but at some point we certainly will. Uh, and uh, you know, so the time range is going to be extended up five to seven days. That's going to also be captured on what's going to be a seven-day or what is a seven-day graphical TWO uh, this year. And we've been experimenting with seven-day Genesis forecasts in-house for three or four years. 
Uh, they're pretty reliable in terms of if we say something has a 60% chance of development, then over the long run, those systems develop about 60% of the time. And the, uh, the reliability of the seven-day forecast is just about as good or maybe even a little better than the five-day forecast. So we thought this was the right time to go ahead and push that information out to the week-long time range and just improve people's situational awareness. Uh, some things will be a little different. With the seven-day outlook systems, at least systems that we probably are more confident in are going to be introduced into the outlook sooner, uh, and they will move through the various categories into the medium and high categories earlier, producing longer lead times ahead of the, uh, the potential for a system to form. And the areas that we draw on the graphic, which are genesis areas, and they're supposed to capture the area where we think genesis could occur, will be bigger. Uh, especially for fast moving systems and where the timing is, un is uncertain for formation, where it could occur anywhere in that seven day time frame. If you have a fast moving system, it's going to cover a lot of ground over a week long time frame. So you will see some bigger areas, probably a little more overlap of areas, especially in the deep tropics where we can have multiple systems uh, forming uh, across the, the main development region, especially as we get into the peak of the season. So the graphics will look a little different. There'll be maybe more systems on the graphics at times. But overall, the look and feel of the products themselves is not going to really change too much. It'll just be some additional timing, uh, additional information out to seven days instead of five. That's great, Mike. I, I had one little question on that that uh, yeah. someone else had asked me, and I, and I got, couldn't really directly answer that. So I thought maybe I'd pose it to you. Uh, do you foresee that you'll have uh, a better skill at uh, forecasting out seven days for the the, the waves coming off Africa and crossing the main development region versus the the, the hybrid-like systems we get off the tail ends of fronts and other disturbances off the East Coast or down here in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, I would I would imagine so. Uh, you know, most of the model guidance and the tools that we have and, and our understanding of sort of the interseasonal oscillations really has to do more with genesis in the main development region and the deep tropics. Uh, we, we all know that the models and, and our forecasts tend to struggle with the more hybrid type systems in the subtropics or mid-latitudes. So, yeah, it's, it's good to point out that not every system is going to be in the outlook seven days before it forms. We are still dealing with systems that sometimes are, uh, you know, very difficult to form and sometimes surprise everybody and uh, go on and develop with very short lead time. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of those tend to happen close to land uh, in the Gulf or off the southeast coast of the U.S. or even up into the mid-latitudes. So, uh, my sense is that you'll see more of the systems uh, in the uh, in the in the deeper tropics uh, in terms of uh, with the longer lead times, at least with the higher probabilities. Thanks. Yeah, no, it's a great question. Thanks for thanks for uh, for for bringing that up. A um, couple other changes to the outlook that have happened in the last year or two. Uh, in 2022, we in the text product, we started adding these geographic headers for the disturbances to help keep the systems, help it make it easier to keep multiple systems straight. You know, which system is, is NHC talking about here? Give a little bit of a geographic description of where the system is. Starting this year, we're going to actually add the invest numbers when they're available to those headers. So these AL90 through 99 in the Atlantic are, you know, d uh, numbers that we use to track uh, disturbances and start to run model guidance on them and get satellite imagery. So when there's an invest that's open on a system, you will see the invest ID here in the header uh, section header. So for example, here in this example, uh, AL91. Again, helps uh, minimize confusion. Sometimes we have multiple invests open. It's not always clear which invest is associated with which disturbance. So this will hopefully uh, help uh, make that a little more clear to everybody, including those of us here at NHC who sometimes look at the product and you're like, oh yeah, which one is this? Uh, if you're coming in off of a few days off or you're just trying to, 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 to get up to speed and, and there's multiple invests, it's, it's very helpful to, to sort of see that information there. Uh, another change that's going to happen this year is we are taking the watches and warnings out of the forecast advisory product or the TCM. Uh, the, the, the watch warning information for land areas for storm surge, hurricane and tropical storm watches and warnings has always been duplicated between the public advisory and the forecast advisory. But pulling it out of the forecast advisory will help us expedite the issuance of that product because if we're waiting on last minute watch warning changes in the past, we had to make sure that they got into both the forecast advisory and the public advisory before they were issued. Whereas the forecast advisory is really a forecast product. It, it's the data that goes into the forecast. It's not really well suited for all the watch warning information. And in addition, it's not always up to date because the forecast advisory only gets issued every six hours. Watches and warnings can change 
on the intermediate advisory. So the public advisory is really where we want to steer people toward to get that watch warning information. And hopefully this change will allow us to get the forecast advisory out a little sooner, which we know is of great interest to everybody. Uh, you know, emergency managers, broadcast media, you have to go on and make graphics and get the forecast plotted up to talk about it. Uh, and it's, you know, so, uh, so, so we're really moving towards making the forecast advisory truly a data product that's meant to really be parsed uh, to ingest forecast information and get the watches and warnings out of there. And then here's just an example, obviously, of where the watches and warnings can be found in the public advisory. And that's that's where we want to steer people towards uh, going forward. Another change this year is that the peak storm surge forecast graphic is now operational. Uh, we've been experimenting with this graphic for the last couple, two to three years, and it shows expected storm surge inundation values for portions of the U.S. Gulf and Atl for the U.S. Gulf and Atlantic Coast, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. So it's a graphical representation of the storm surge forecast information that's in the public advisory. So this is an example from Ian last year. You can see, you know, so the, somewhere between Inglewood and Bonita Beach, you would expect to see 12 to 16 feet of inundation above ground level, including Charlotte Harbor. Uh, you know, from uh, middle of Longbow Key up to Ancloat River, four to six feet of inundation, somewhere in that area. So just a high-level briefing you know, graphic that shows, again, that high-level storm surge inundation forecast. So that product will now be operational this year. So it'll be guaranteed to be available when, when it's issued, and it'll also be supported in uh, you know, various data formats like GIS uh, for, for folks to ingest and use as well. Any, any questions on new products or, or anything else changing for 2023 before we get into some forecast error trends and some uh, challenges I want to chat about? And no, but okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, just to remind people of where we are in terms of track error trends, this is that chart many of you have probably seen showing average track forecast errors by decade. Uh, we continue to see good news here. Uh, if you look at the last, you know, this decade from 2020 to 2022, we're still seeing a pretty substantial improvement over the last decade in terms of track forecast errors, seeing, continuing to see, you know, decreases on average all the way out from 12 out to, to 120 hours. And if you go back and look at the, you know, compared to the first decade of this century, at days two to five, the track forecast errors are now about half of what they were, uh, you know, 20, 15 to 20 years ago. And in 2022, we actually set record low track forecast errors at 24 to 60 hours and also at 96 and 120 hours. So there's still you know, good news on average on the track forecast error trends. And uh, you may have seen this graphic before. We've updated it again for the last three years. This is a graphic showing track forecast error on the y-axis and track forecast consistency on the x-axis for the NHC forecast and for three of the primary global models we use for forecasting track, the ECMWF, the GFS, and the UK Met. And again, as we've shown before, this is for 96-hour track forecasts from 2020 to 2022 in the Atlantic Basin. You want to be down in this lower left uh, corner where you have low track forecast errors and also uh, consistent forecasts from cycle to cycle. And you can see the NHC forecast here is pretty well separated from that of the individual models uh, with a lower track forecast error on average and more consistency from cycle to cycle than we see with the models, uh, with the, all three models having higher track forecast error on average than the, than the, uh, than the NHC forecast and also uh, more variability from cycle to cycle. So the main message about this is stop focusing so much on individual model trends from cycle to cycle. We know it makes for great comparisons and we see it on social media, we see it on television, but we really want people to focus on the NHC forecast to help, you know, so that we're not asking people to play amateur meteorologist and try to figure out the models for themselves, but that to, to, to really message that, you know, NHC has a handle on the situation. We have the, you know, on average, the most consistent and the lowest error forecast across the board. And we really want people to sort of focus and then center in on that message that that forecast is sending. On the intensity front, the news is good as well. This is the decadal air average errors uh, trend graphic for intensity. And, you know, for many, many years, the, the errors really didn't change. We didn't see much, a whole lot of progress between 1970 and, and the first decade of this century. But we've really seen some progress uh, since then. Uh, we've seen track forecast errors have been reduced by 25 to 50 percent from day from 48 hours out to five days. And we can see, again, a substantial improvement in intensity forecast errors in the last three years relative to the 2010s. 
Uh, we set record low errors for intensity forecast in 2022 from 12 hours all the way out through 60 hours. So again, seeing some progress there. We're certainly not perfect, but you can see that on average in this decade, the average 72-hour intensity forecast error is actually below 10 knots, which is quite remarkable if you go back and you look at the 1990s or the 2000s, it was up to 16 or 17 knots on average. So that's a pretty substantial improvement. Uh, we are starting to tackle things like rapid intensification as well. This is just an example of one of the successful RI forecasts from last year where we forecast a, a, 40, a 40 mile per hour increase in Ian's intensity early on in its lifespan, uh, going from a 60 mile per hour tropical storm to a 100 mile per hour hurricane, and, and we were able to really capture that. Um, certainly, RI still poses challenges. We don't get it exactly right. We don't get the timing right. We don't always get the duration right or the peak intensity right. But in many cases, we are actually able to anticipate that there is at least some chance for rapid intensification, and we are making explicit rapid intensification forecasts now that really were not possible to make even five and certainly not 10 plus years ago. We just did not have the model guidance to support it or the confidence to make that type of uh, aggressive forecast. So I think there's a lot of value there in that, especially early on in a storm, when you have a storm that's developing near land and you can make a, an initial forecast for an Ida or an Ian, that from the very first advisory puts on the table that, hey, we're gonna be looking at a major hurricane landfall here from this system, even within three to four days, uh, really sets the, sets the expectations properly for what the impacts could be from, uh, from a developing system. You know, with the improved skill now and the uh, intensity, uh, uh, back when I was still doing this, the the error was roughly the uh, same amount as it is the difference between one category and the next. And the standard rule of thumb we trained emergency managers on was uh, plan your decisions by adding one category to the forecast intensity to right. build in that confidence. Are, are we backing away from that now or do you think we still need to think about that? I think there's probably still some value in planning for something, you know, above the uh, the forecast. You know, you know, we have tools that account for that in terms of like the the inundation graphic and how we, you know, message and warn for storm surge as we do try to account for that upside potential for a storm. Um, you know, you could see that you know three to four days out, you're you're still at ten knots or maybe a little more for intensity error. So that's still close to a category difference, but it's not quite what it was. Um, you know, we, and, uh, you know, so I think it's still valuable for people to expect that, you know, or at least plan for, if you're thinking about planning for a reasonable worst case scenario to plan for something stronger than the forecast, we're actually working on some, you know, prototype products that would give people a reasonable worst case scenario for wind or for landfall intensity so that we can provide sort of more explicit products that account for that, uh, the, the situational uncertainty for a given system rather than relying on these sort of rules of thumb going forward. So that guidance, I would guess, will probably evolve in the coming years. Wow. Is that, is that following the the, uh, the uh, strategy we used with the 10% uh, uh, exceedance at the, in the storm surge part of the problem? Yeah, exactly. You know, as, as we're working on improving the wind speed probability products, uh, you know, with sort of a next generation version of that, then you would be able to extract a 10% exceedance for wind at a given location, for example, or a 10% exceedance for landfall intensity within a given area. So we're starting to, to take a look at what those products could look like, want to involve social science and how that information can be best conveyed to people, because it could be kind of complicated in terms of how do you depict that on a graphic or in a text product. So, uh, but yeah, I think that's where we're moving toward is a reasonable worst case scenario for wind and for surge that we could provide to people. Uh, that could see where that'd be a real big help for the decision makers. Yeah, exactly. Especially in these RI type situations, uh, short fuse situations. Um, and, you know, that, that kind of information could eventually become help be used as guidance for watch warning decisions and other information as well. Um, on, on the RI front, here's a couple of graphics that show basically the error characteristics for rapid intensification scenarios on the left, these are 24 hour intensity forecast errors. This is a histogram of them. When RI is either observed or forecast. And you can see that from 2015 to 2017, you can see the distribution is skewed strongly negative. In fact, the mean error in this distribution is 20 knots under forecast compared to the actual intensity. You can see the zero line is way over here with not very many over forecast. You can see something's definitely changed in the 2020 to 2022 timeframe. The whole distribution shifted to the right. 
the mean error now is 10 knots too low instead of 20. And you've, we've gotten rid of these really big errors, the 65, 70 knot errors. And we're starting to see some over forecast errors too. So you're starting to see a more normally distributed error, error distribution uh, for RI cases, which is again, why we started to see some of those average intensity forecast errors come down. If you start cutting out errors of 50, 60, 70 knots, that will help your mean error, uh, mean error uh, characteristics, even across the board, not just RI type cases. And in, in addition, the largest under forecast error compared to what was happening in the 2015 to 2017 era has now been reduced by almost half. So the largest forecast error in this distribution here is 40 knots in 24 hours where it was 75 knots. So again, making progress, not perfect, still a long way to go. But uh, it's good to see these improvements after a long, long time of, of, of struggling with RI. Um, speaking of RI, again, just a reminder that you know, you've probably seen this graphic before, too, that the strongest hurricanes that hit this country uh, are all tropical storms or less three days before landfall. And we've added another one to this line, including Ian. Uh, from last year, and you can see that the Gulf Coast in particular, as well as the Florida Peninsula, are, are most vulnerable to these developing systems that rapidly intensify and then make landfall as either high-end Category 4 or Category 5 systems. To get a storm that strong, you have to go through some sort of rapid intensification phase. That typically happens early in a storm's life cycle, and so that's, that's going to lend itself to these sort of short fuse, short lead time, uh, high-end hurricane events that we've dealt with uh, four of them over the last five years, starting with Michael and going through Ian last year. So just a reminder that not every storm is going to give you five, six, seven days to get ready. Even some of the highest impact events are going to be much shorter, shorter lead time. Messaging. Let's talk a little bit about the cone. Um, came up a lot during Ian, after Ian last year. This is just an example of what the cone looked like for one of the Ian advisories with the wind field depicted on it, along with the storm surge watch warning, uh, the storm surge warning there and the sort of the bright pink and the, uh, the lighter pink is the storm surge watch. Again, the cone graphic is really just a high level overview of where the center of the storm is likely to move over the next few days. Hazards are almost always gonna extend well outside the cone. You could especially see that in this example with such a vulnerable coastline on the west coast of Florida. Tremendous storm surge risk far, far from the center especially to the right of where that center comes on shore. And we really want to get people to focus on the hazard products, the watches and warnings, time of arrival information, the surge information, wind speed probabilities, excessive rainfall outlook for flooding, and really focus away from the cone and the details of the track forecast. And I'm just going to step through an exam a series of what the cone graphics look like and the storm surge watch warning configuration along the Florida West Coast. And you can see that the storm surge messaging was consistent, starting with Advisory 12 when a storm surge watch was issued for the area that, that received that biggest storm surge there in the Lee County, Fort Myers area. And you can see that regardless of how the track forecast shifted around and changed, the watch warning message for surge was consistent in showing that risk of life-threatening storm surge along the Florida West Coast across multiple advisories and multiple days. So, uh, so there is information there that tells people, hey, these are the life-threatening hazards they're at risk of. The cone is not going to do that. It can be useful as a high-level briefing tool or a high-level overview, but there's certainly much more to the story than just what the, uh, the, the cone graphic can provide. I want to briefly touch on some information we've looked at for hurricane fatality trends in the United States going back over the last 10 years. Uh, we've had a lot of busy seasons. We have a lot of impactful storms. And it's basically been about 10 years since we updated the overall statistics for the Atlantic Basin. Uh, this is sort of a quick overview chart that shows the direct fatalities in red by year and the indirect fatalities in blue uh, going back from 2013 to 2022. Uh, you can see a big uptick in fatalities starting in 2017. Uh, the other thing that jumps out from this graphic is that the number of direct and indirect deaths is, is pretty close. It's almost equal. And remember the indirect deaths are not deaths due directly to the forces of the storm. These are largely after the, the storm fatalities. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, but it, it's pretty safe to say that we're losing almost as many people after this storm as we are during the storm now. And you can see that the, uh, the number of direct fatalities, uh, you know, does obviously go up and down. The number of indirect fatalities really does vary quite a bit from year to year. 
Most of them are associated with major hurricane landfalls, which we've had a lot of since 2017. You can see that prior to that, the number of indirect fatalities was pretty low during this period, but it's been much, much higher uh, since from 2017 onward. So we'll dive into the direct fatalities. Uh, this is the sample again over the last 10 years, direct fatalities in the United States. Uh, I should mention that these numbers do not include Maria in Puerto Rico but they do include other storms. Maria, the cause of fatalities is not generally known. And there's just, there were some bulk statistics that, uh, you know, certainly there was a study done by George Washington University that showed there were about 3,000 fatalities in Maria. We think most of those were sort of indirect after the storm, but we don't have any information on cause. It was sort of an excess mortality study, so we don't have details. So those numbers are not included here. But from the rest of the sample, again, about 440 direct fatalities in the U.S. during this 10-year period, 57% uh, of them due to freshwater flooding. So that has been the biggest killer in this country in the last 10 years from tropical storms and hurricanes. The next uh, deadliest hazard is surf and rip currents. Uh, and then followed by wind and storm surge, basically right at about 11% each, and then the various other hazards. But it's still appropriate to say that about 90% of the fatalities are due to some, to water in some way, shape or form. It's just that, uh, you know, compared to the previous sort of 50-year period where about half the fatalities were due to storm surge, now we're seeing about half of them due to freshwater flooding. But as we saw in Ian just last year, storm surge still has the potential to kill the largest number of people by hazard, of any one hazard on a given day. And if you look at the direct fatalities broken down by year and by type, we're averaging about 44 per year, uh, but it varies quite a bit. We had two in 2013 and, and almost 100 in 2017. You see a lot of dark blue on this chart. A lot of freshwater flooding fatalities, they kind of occur just about every year. You can see the big uh, contribution from storm surge here in 2022 from Ian. Some other storm surge fatalities here from Michael largely in 2018. But overall, the storm surge fatality numbers have been quite low. Fair number of wind fatalities, uh, for especially 2016 onward. We've had a lot of major hurricane landfalls. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the, the, the characteristics of the, uh, the, the wind fatalities going forward. A lot of surf and rip current fatalities almost every year, 15 or 20 of them uh, that, that sort of add up one at a time. And that's been sort of a, a, a less prominent hazard that we're trying to put a, a bigger uh, focus on going forward. Direct fatalities by state uh, during this period, Florida, North Carolina, and Texas have been the biggest, uh, have had the largest number of fatalities. Florida with multiple major hurricane landfalls, the biggest contribution there is uh, from storm surge fatalities, from uh, mostly from Ian, but also a few from Michael. Texas obviously had a tremendous number of, of flooding fatality, freshwater flooding fatalities from Harvey. A lot of freshwater flooding fatalities in North Carolina as well, with some wind and, and rip current fatalities. But again, you can see the numbers across the various states. You see the fatalities there in, in uh, New Jersey, largely, and New York, largely from Ida and its uh, remnants in terms of flash flooding. Uh, and if you go back and look at the direct fatalities by age, you see that they do disproportionately skew older. Uh, the majority of the fatalities are occurring with people, you know, 60, 70 uh, years older and years of age and older. Uh, the causes are pretty broadly distributed across all the age groups, though. You see freshwater flooding affecting every age, surf and rip currents tending to affect people 60 and under. Wind fatalities are broadly spread across different ages. You do see that the storm surge fatalities tend to skew older, and we'll talk a little bit about that uh, in a minute. Uh, fatalities by gender, it's about two-thirds men, about a third women over this past 10-year uh, past period. And that's I think that's a little more of a gender skew towards men than was in the previous sample over a previous 50-year period. If we look at freshwater, the direct fatalities, again, freshwater flooding is responsible for the largest number of direct fatalities, uh, Harvey, Ida, and Matthew were the largest freshwater flooding fatality events uh, during this past 10 years. Surf and rip currents are an increasing threat with more than 15% of the fatalities. Most of them occur in, not surprisingly, states that have pretty well-known and pretty popular beaches, Florida, North Carolina, and New Jersey. Storm surge responsible for about 11 to 12% of the fatalities, but as we saw in Ian, uh, we can still have large loss of life in a single day. More than 80% of the storm surge victims are age 60 and over. So that may speak to some mobility and transportation issues that are associated with people trying to evacuate in advance of storm surge uh, that may be affecting that demographic more than others. 
48 or 50 of the storm surge deaths occurred in Florida during this period. Winds responsible for about 12% of the fatalities. Almost all of them are tree-related, uh, trees falling on cars, homes, or people outside. And again, as I mentioned, most of the uh, uh, direct fatality victims are men, and most of them are age 50 plus. Moving on to the indirect fatalities, uh, a wide range of causes largely related to various types of accidents, power-related issues, medical-related issues. You can see that the biggest killer is actually vehicle incidents, car accidents, uh, here with about 16% of the fatalities. Other big categories are accidents that occur during prep preparation for the storm or recovery for the storm. Uh, then we followed by carbon monoxide poisoning, uh, power problems or electrocution, medical access issues, cardiac related issues, and then a fair number of unknown or other causes also sprinkled in as well. But you'll see the number of indirect fatalities is also above 400. Uh, by year, again, a lot of variability in the year-to-year the -year numbers for the indirect fatalities. The average is about 41 or 42 per year. But we have, again, some years with over 100 or more, other years with very, very few. Again, these largely tend to be uh, associated with major hurricane landfalls where you have widespread power outages, loss of services, potential loss of medical access, uh, potential loss of air conditioning that leads to cardiac or other heat-related stress issues. Uh, and those, uh, those indirect fatalities, disproportionately, even more than the direct fatalities, uh, affect uh, older, older folks in the population uh, uh, distribution. By state, Florida has had more than double the number, of, essentially almost more than four times the number of indirect fatalities than any other state and almost double the indirect fatalities of all the other states put together. Uh, Florida's had multiple major hurricane landfalls during this period. You think of Irma, Michael, and Ian are responsible for most of the indirect fatalities in Florida during this period. But Florida's absolutely been hammered with indirect fatalities and, and more than double the number of direct fatalities that we had in Florida during this period. By age, again, uh, skew towards older folks. Um, you can see the brown bars here get bigger as you get older. Medical access issues become an increasing issue. Cardiac issues become increasingly likely with older uh, portions of the population. Heat-related issues tend to affect older portions of the population, whereas the younger uh, folks we're losing in indirect fatalities tend to be more related to vehicle accidents or power problems and electrocution or carbon monoxide poisoning. And carbon monoxide poisoning is actually pretty evenly spread across all the age ranges because if you have a carbon monoxide poisoning incident in a home, you tend to lose everyone in that home across, uh, across the age groups. Even more of a skew towards men and in indirect fatalities, about 70%. Uh, and again, uh, again um, skews older and more male than even the direct fatalities do. 75% of these indirect fatalities are actually associated with major hurricane landfalls. And Ian and Irma alone are responsible for about 40% of the indirect fatalities during the last 10 years. I mentioned Florida with its uh, extreme number of indirect deaths and almost as many indirect fatalities as all the other states put together. Uh, the leading cause of these is, again, largely vehicle incidents, other types of accidents. We've really been trying to hit the carbon monoxide poisoning issue uh, and, and raise awareness of that. We've tried to improve our post-storm safety messaging, and we actually didn't have any carbon monoxide poisonings in Florida after Ian, which is a, a pretty good outcome considering the number of power outages that there were. Uh, so again, uh, lots of things that we're, we've sort of started to tease out of these, uh, of these summary statistics over the last 10 years. We want to dig into this more, though. We want to look at things like demographics, age, social vulnerability index, and how do those fatality trends vary with those characteristics on both the individual and the community scale level? And we want to use this information to help refine our messaging. We're coming up with new uh, infographics and messaging to help message the rip current threat this year, for example, uh, in the weather service. And we can help, you know, hopefully work with media, EMs, and other partners to amplify this messaging. You need to start messaging the post-storm safety during the storm or even before the storm because... It's going to be harder to reach people after the event. So we need to be messaging the safety during the storm and after the storm in the run-up to the storm itself. And that's something we've been trying to do as well through our media pool and social media. So um, I think that's it. I'll uh, be glad to open it up and uh, hopefully we can have some discussion and, and take any questions and, and go over anything else we want to uh, want to cover.
So I'm going to hit you with a couple of questions right now, and then I'm going to turn it over to Hal, and then we'll get back and, and have a broader discussion. The, the excess mortality studies, uh, I think that would be enlightening. I don't know if others have been done other than for Maria, but uh, you see a whole lot of uh, increase after a landfall in a community in the local paper and the obituaries. Yeah, uh, weeks and months after the storm, the cause of death is whatever the medical condition that got them, and it doesn't get included in these kind of statistics because there's nothing there that you can latch onto to build your database for that. Uh, do you know if there's any effort to, uh, from the the folks that did the Maria study to broaden it to to other hurricanes? I, I'm not aware of that. I mean, I think the Maria study was commissioned by the government of Puerto Rico, uh, given the fact that they really did not have a another way to try to to quantify what actually happened on that island. It's interesting at the National Hurricane Conference, we actually had a medical examiner come speak at a session where we talked about mortality and fatality trends. And she brought up this fact that, you know, the fatality trends for a hurricane have a tremendously long tail. Like you said, it could be medical issues. There could be somebody that has an injury that might end up dying months or even years later. Uh, that wouldn't have happened if that injury hadn't happened after the storm. So these numbers are always evolving and, and we know we're only capturing a, a piece of what's truly happening, especially with the indirect fatalities. Although I think our, our database and our cataloging of those has improved tremendously in the last 10 years, but, but we know there are things that we're missing and, and uh, certainly there are, there are things that happen after the event or after we've written the report and after the numbers get compiled that, that don't ever make it into the statistics. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just on your, your last point there about the, uh, uh, needing to get that information out before the storm makes landfall. I think you're making headway. The uh, I follow yeah. when there's a storm that's coming near our area. I tend to follow a lot of media, and that's I, I noticed that in the last couple of years that there was a lot more info on what what could get to you after the storm being put out there. Good advice. So, okay, I'm gonna. That was great. I'm gonna turn it over to Hal, and uh, he's got a little bit of uh, show and tell for us, and then we'll uh, get back into the question mode. Hal. Yeah, Mike, I really enjoyed your presentation there. Um, I Actually, Bill, could I ask a question or two? And then I think we have a little video with GeoTrack. Sure. But um, that'd be okay. Mike, really enjoyed your presentation. Why do you think we're seeing so many freshwater fatalities in the past decade compared to previous decades? And what can we do to reduce that? Yeah, I think it's part of it is that freshwater fatalities are sort of the equal opportunity um, hazard. They occur regardless of storm intensity. Uh, they occur hundreds of miles in, in, in geographic areas far removed from landfall. Like you look at what happened with Ida in the Northeast. Uh, you know, we saw we've had just you know, tremendously, you know, record-breaking rainfall events that have occurred during this sample period and, and it resulted in widespread, you know, sort of catastrophic level flash flooding. You can think of Florence in North and South Carolina. You can think of Harvey. You can think of storms like Imelda, you can think of Ida, uh, and, uh, and Matthew back in 2016 with multiple fatalities. Um, I, I just think that, you know, a lot of them are vehicle related too. We have people out driving uh, after storms, driving around barricades, driving into flooded areas. Some of it's preventable. Some of it is more accidental. Uh, I just think that, and again, because the storm surge fatalities have, have generally been, especially before Ian, been lower that the freshwater fatalities just made up a bigger piece of the pie. Uh, you know, they've always been, you know, if you go back and look at Ed Rappaport's work, they made up about a quarter of the fatalities from the 1960 to 2012, 2012 era. So uh, with the decrease in the surge fatalities and maybe an uptick in the freshwater flooding, I think that's responsible for, for that bigger, bigger uh, proportion of fatalities due to that cause. Yeah, there definitely seemed to be a lot of challenges with freshwater flooding. I, I remember doing field work during Hurricane Florence in 2018 in North Carolina. The NHC accurately predicted perhaps 25, 30 or more inches of rain. I thought it was interesting. We took refuge during a bad part of the storm. The hotel had electricity still working and a local broadcast meteorologist at some point said, hey, the storm's now been downgraded. It's no longer a hurricane. Yeah. And I thought, you know, wow, we have to be careful with that because that term downgraded, I think when people hear that, they think, oh, my risk is ended, but they still yeah. didn't, they barely started their 30 inches of rain, right? So I could see some yeah. real challenges with how we communicate hurricane risk with freshwater flooding. Yeah, and we, we've actually taken steps to 
promote more of the flooding information on hurricanes.gov. A lot of that comes from the Weather Prediction Center through their excessive rainfall outlook, through the rainfall forecast information. Uh, you know, and and they're they're still issuing advisories and products on a system even after it's it's gone down to depression strength or, or remnants of. And we try to again keep that messaging and keep the product suite as consistent as we can. I think there's just challenging and challenging and mes- challenges in messaging rainfall threats in general. Sure. It rains so often, people don't make that connection between rain being something that could kill them. Uh, you know, storm surge is different. High winds are different. People don't experience that every day. People experience rain. Some part, you know, very, very frequently. And I think it, it, for these very, very high-end rainfall events, it's difficult for people to conceptualize what what does 20 inches or 30 inches or 40 inches of rain, what's that actually going to mean in terms of impacts? For us as meteorologists, we can sort of see that start to play out in the hydrologic system in terms of flash flooding or river flooding. But to, to, to most folks that aren't meteorologists, that they can't conceptualize what that's going to do to their community. And I think, you know, the Weather Service is moving towards uh, you know, introducing flood inundation mapping. We're starting to roll that out in parts of the country this year and going to gradually expand it. So that'll help with some of the freshwater flooding messaging going forward. Thanks, Mike. Um, now, before you go on, let's take a quick moment just to thank our sponsors. We're midway through the program. We want to thank all those who make this possibility. Then, Hal, uh, you can jump in and, and, and do your quick presentation, and then we'll get back to more questions with Mike. We appreciate it. Uh, USAA, we appreciate all you do, USAA. You've been part of this from the beginning. The South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau, the host site for the National Tropical Weather Conference each and every year. We've been there from the beginning, and we really appreciate all that uh, they do uh, to make the National Tropical Weather Conference in-person meeting such a success. The Weather Company, Weather Boy, Black Magic Design, Whataburger, the Port of Brownsville, all some of the companies who make NTWC Live and the National Tropical Weather Conference a success year in and year out. And so good to see everybody in person on South Padre Island. Okay, Hal, back to you, sir. Thanks so much, Tim. Alex, I think we have a little video to show, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the GeoTrack project. This is starting to surge out in here. I'm on the west end of Mobile Bay. So it begins, I'm off to Hurricane Grace in the Yucatan Peninsula, leaving Galveston. This is crazy. The first person at the gate told me all these access points are closed. But man, what a sight. Here I am in Tulum. We're waiting for conditions to deteriorate here, but right now it's really quiet. Hurricane Grace bearing down on us, and we'll get here in about maybe four or five hours. Hurricane force winds, but you would never know it. Sustained winds expected to be around 155 miles an hour. We're only four to six inches short of it flooding the living area of the upstairs. I never in my lifetime would have believed that that water would have come up that far. But seeing is believing, and I saw disasters. We want to understand the physical processes behind these disasters and behind this type of weather. We also want to understand what the impacts are on the build environment and on human life and safety. And then finally, what we can do to get out ahead of these disasters to mitigate and reduce loss of property loss and, and loss of fatalities as well. It's really fitting this year. We're going to have a GeoTrek spotlight every week on the National Tropical Weather Conference. That's very fitting because we cover hurricanes and coastal hazards really probably more than any other natural disaster out there, but we also do a lot of work in severe weather, looking at strong, uh, severe thunderstorm winds, hail, and tornadoes, as well as winter weather from freezes, heavy snow loads, and ice storms. But we also engage other, uh, we would say, 
maybe, um, I don't want to say more peripheral hazards, but, but a whole range of hazards, earthquakes, tsunamis. Last year, I was in Kentucky and West Virginia. We did a two-part series on sinkholes and caves and things like that. We're really covering anything that could impact the build environment, trying to understand what those impacts are and how we can reduce the losses. This project is really sponsored and funded by CNC Catastrophe and National Claims, a private sector company based in Mobile, Alabama, that's been working in the insurance services industry for more than 30 years, helping people get their lives together after natural disasters and extreme weather. There are really a couple ways that you can be involved with GeoTrek. Again, we're going to be doing a spotlight every week here on the National Tropical Weather Conference. We're going to have uh, two slides here that show while I'm explaining them. One is the podcast. We actually host a podcast that airs twice a month. Feedspot, who ranks podcasts, now ranks us as a number one podcast for natural disasters, and we're always engaging with interesting guests. In fact, a lot of guests and friends of the National Tropical Weather Conference have been featured on the GeoTrek podcast, a good place to start with the podcast wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's Spotify or um you know, your favorite podcast platform, you can check out episode number 69, which were a sample of interviews from this past National Tropical Weather Conference in South Padre Island back in April. A lot of little sampling there of interesting research that people are doing. That airs on podcast number 69. Also, we're very involved in social media as well. So we have a Facebook group called GeoTrek the Community, where we have a lot of really interesting discussions. And also check us out on TikTok. We have a lot of social media reels that, again, engage what's going on in the world of extreme weather and natural disasters, what those impacts are, and ways that we can mitigate those disasters as well. Always a lot of interesting interactions and social media reels right there on TikTok. You can, uh, we have our QR code up there. You can, you can just join right away and see what we're doing there and engage with us to learn more about the GeoTrek pro, um, project and be a part of that. Thanks, uh, Alex and Tim and Bill and everyone for, uh, for inviting us to be a part of what y'all are doing here. It's exciting to be a part of the, the weekly virtual National Tropical Weather Conference, and uh, we'll be exciting to be a part of this every week. Thanks, Hal. Uh, okay, uh, uh, Tim, I believe we've got some questions from the viewers. What you got for us? We do have one, a couple of questions, and, and Dr. Brennan, this one comes back to, we talk about the, the cone and the center line, and, and one of our viewers is saying, can we ever eliminate that center line? And I know that's hard to do because you've got to put parameters on that cone somehow. It's got to be defined somehow. But uh, any hope of ever getting rid of the center line that people tend to focus on perhaps a little bit too much? Yeah, I mean, well, well, the default cone we show doesn't have a center line on it. And I know there have been some move in some of the broadcast media folks to remove the center line from, from various cones. Sometimes they even remove the dots that show the, the points and the intensity forecast and instead show something next to a line, you know, on the outside of the cone. So, so there are certainly ways you can try to de-emphasize the, uh, the center positions. But yeah, you're right. You're trying to convey information about intensity and other things on a graphic so that it does make it somewhat complicated. But yeah, I mean, it, you, there are certainly ways you can take the center line off the cone itself. I know, you know, at our TV station, we don't, we haven't shown the center line for years just yeah. because it's, it's, it's too much of a, it, it draws your, your eyes right into it. And, and Ian was a great example of how that was a, a, just a bad thing to do. So, so, okay, appreciate that. James is asking, what changes can be made legislatively, in your opinion, that would require local governments to issue evacuations based on storm surge warnings? Well, I think a lot of, I mean, we, we know that the evacuation decisions are basically made for storm surge, you know, primarily already. One of the challenges is a lot of communities are making evacuation decisions in advance of when storm surge warnings are issued. You know, the warning is sort of like the, hey, the Lord of the last word that, hey, this is a life-threatening situation. If you're in an evacuation zone, please get out, you know, uh, you know, because the, the warnings basically issued with a, a lead time of about 36 hours before the onset of either tropical storm force winds or before we think the water is going to rise. It would be challenging to try to adjust the lead times to match the, the needs of every community. So we try to provide something that balances the, the lead time we can provide without overwarning. Uh, we always know that, you know, generally we're going to overwarn because we have to account for the forecast uncertainty. And we're telling people that, hey, you're anywhere in this area is a danger of life threatening inundation. It is a good point to bring up the storm surge warning, though, because I feel like, you know, based on anecdotal evidence and some of the folks we've talked to is you're not sure the storm surge warning is getting the attention it deserves. It's really the loudest alarm that the National Weather Service can sound uh, that, hey, you're at risk of the 
potentially most life-threatening hazard associated with a hurricane. This is not generally a safe place for you to stay in, especially if you've been asked to leave by your local or state officials. So we really want the media and partners to kind of reemphasize that storm surge warning. We Sometimes it doesn't get as much attention as the hurricane warning does, which may be understandable because the hurricane warning has been around for so long. But the storm surge warning really does carry that extra level of, of urgency with it. And uh, we want to make sure that that comes across. I think the graphics that, that you're putting out that are no longer experimental will go a long way toward that. And hopefully uh, television stations will adopt that. Talk about trusting your source. You know, you, you mentioned yeah. a little bit about that um, because it's so important. And there's so many sources out there now. And, and it really comes down. There's just one we should all trust. Well, right. I mean, and, and we know that not everybody gets their information directly from the Hurricane Center. You know, information from us can reach folks through local media, broadcast meteorologists, emergency managers, government officials, local National Weather Service offices. But the main message is for people to find their trusted sources of information now so that you're not hunting around for it when a storm threatens, because it's sort of the great irony of our time is that we're in an era where there's more information than ever before available to people but it's not always reliable information. It's not always the latest information. It's not always good information. And a lot of times it's, it's easy for people to get overwhelmed and sort of shut down and not take action. We know from social science if people hear multiple messages about the hazard or about the risk that they, they're more likely to not do anything. So we want to make sure that people are finding those, those trusted sources of local information that they can depend on when a, when a storm threatens them. Especially when their websites are putting out the 20-day GFS and saying, look what's going to happen 20 days from now in Florida or whatever. You know, it's just, it's kind of off the chart. Yeah, I mean, you know, it is tempting. It, that that type of information can get a lot of attention, a lot of clicks. But, you know, and that's, that's um, you know, something we have to, to, as a hurricane community, try to push back against at least a little bit and, and keep pointing people toward those authoritative sources of information. That's one thing I hope that the pushing the tropical weather outlook out to seven days will help a little bit. It sort of eats into that sort of longer lead time where there, a lot of people are, uh, you know, focused on what's there in the models at those longer lead times, seven to 10 days into the future. So, uh, you know, sometimes seeing that there's not anything in the outlook at seven days can be a pretty valuable piece of information, uh, you know, and, and hopefully it'll help people relax a little bit. I'll jump back in. I know you've got a couple of questions. I know, Bill, you do too, but I'll jump back in and we'll get back to Bill after that. Mike, what advice do you have on communicating uncertainty for these storms where maybe there's a wider range in the in the model runs? We saw that last year and other years as well. Any advice on how we communicate that as professionals? Well, I think we can focus not on, you know, not on the details of the track forecast, especially in those situations when we know it's more uncertain, we can you know, we can focus on the watches and warnings, which should take into account that uncertainty or the, the details of the track. When you have a storm like Ian that's moving parallel to a coastline, there's going to be uh, just even if the track forecast, even if the models were more be better behaved, you would have still had a situation where a very small change in the track forecast or the track of the storm would have made a huge difference in where the landfall would have occurred. So, again, sort of broadening the focus away from the track forecast, focusing on the hazards and, and really hitting the message of those hazards and the risk associated with them, I think, is the, is the way forward there. Thank you. Yeah, that, no, that's great. Bill, jump in. Okay, yeah. I've always struggled with that, how to get the storm surge warning. I think part of your issue now is it's still relatively new. So a lot yeah. of the, a lot of the uh, coastal counties and communities still have their plans built around the hurricane warning. You know, so it'll take time to evolve from that. And I guess one... I haven't figured out how to do it, but one way to 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 beat that for any storm uh, at the time you're issuing these products, what is the most uh, volatile hazard coming up? So a tropical storm like Amelda, it's the rainwater flooding. That should be your upfront in your public advisory, and then surge and wind as an afterthought down at the end. I think the key messages that you guys put out is a, is a great step forward on that because that it, people do read that and use it. I think that helps. Yeah, we really try to hit the, the most life-threatening hazards the hardest or upfront in the messaging and things like key, key messages. Some challenges is that sometimes the challenge is that you're going to have multiple life-threatening hazards. You can think of a Florence or you can think of a, of a Harvey where you have the short-term surge and wind threat with a major hurricane and then it transitions to a rainfall threat later on. So, uh, so that can be challenging. But yeah, we try to really use the key messaging, the graphics, the words we choose uh, in, a, in a very careful way to, to try to convey that. Yeah, I was thinking about all these improvements, and I was remembering that uh, 
Uh, when, when I first got the NHC, we were finalizing the plans for the Hurricane Forecast Improvement Project. Uh, at the time, it was to be a 10-year project. I understand it's still going strong. Uh, has the work of the HFIP uh, uh, played a role in the improvements you guys have made? Yeah, I definitely think so. I think it's played a direct role in the intensity forecast improvements. You know, the HWARF model over the years has been dramatically improved, uh, not just the model itself, but how it uses data from aircraft, radar data from the P3, all the flight level data, the drop sons, all that information now actually goes into and is assimilated into models like HWARF and the new HAVS model that's going to be coming online later this season, sort of the next generation hurricane modeling system. So we're making better use of the observational data we have, and that's yielding improved results downstream in the forecast themselves, not just improving the accuracy, but I think also the consistency of the intensity forecast that we see from the models. It helps the forecasters' confidence to go out and make those more aggressive forecasts when the models are more consistently showing it as well. That's great. Uh, what what direction are they uh uh, is HFIP uh, uh, moving in these days? What are they looking ahead for the next three to five years, say? Well, the big push recently has been to get to the implementation of HAVs, which is going to happen this summer. And then there'll be further implementations and improvements on HAVs. You maybe tr start to work towards developing you know, ensembles, which we don't really have for the regional hurricane models at this point. I think one of the things I would like to see move forward is more real-time uncertainty information into our probabilistic products. Right now, the error, the error characteristics we get are largely from climatology, you know, past errors that have been made for track and intensity over the last five years. It would be great to get more real-time uncertainty information in there so that the, the probable, probabilities are more reflective of what the uncertainty is today rather than historical uncertainty. That would be great because I, I, I have trouble explaining that to people when they ask. I say it's the cone is basically the same for every storm we forecast based on on right. past performance. So it's not right, and, and the errors that go into things like P surge and the wind speed probabilities are again based largely on historical or based on historical errors and not necessarily on the situational uncertainty where you might have less uncertainty than typical or more. And then you could see the probabilistic products start to reflect that in terms of, of their, their their breadth and, and the and the magnitude. Those are some great goals. Uh, I oh yeah, I wanted to wanted to ask you some fun and games questions too. Uh, have you bought a nice uh, sturdy carry on bag for all the traveling you're doing that job? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Went through three of those. I didn't learn until afterwards that you need you need to spend more than twenty bucks on your carry on. <laughs> you get one of those those ones with the hard shell. I think they probably last a little better. So, but yeah, it's you know we've we've been able to get back to more of our in person outreach and training this year. It's really sort of the first year post COVID we've been able to get back and do the full scale hurricane awareness tour. A couple of weeks ago, we were been had a big presence at the National Hurricane Conference, the Florida Governor's Hurricane Conference last week. Uh, we've got folks in the Bahamas this week doing some storm surge training and, and rollout for them. So, so we've been back on the road a fair bit. It's been great to kind of reestablish and, and re-nurture all those in-person relationships that are so important. Yeah, I, I think I remember when we took when you were over here at Houston, you told me that uh, you were able to uh, uh, add another forecaster to the. Uh, the hurricane specialist unit that's that's exciting yeah we're in the process of adding in a, an additional forecaster so we don't have them in place yet we actually just brought a new person on board who just started a couple weeks ago so we're in pretty good shape for staffing in terms of uh heading into the season and uh yeah excited to to increase the staffing going forward yeah it's uh, it's aging me too much so in a way i think i i think there are more people i don't know or have not worked with over in that unit now than worked with yeah, we've had a fair amount of turnover. You know, we were really stable. We didn't have a lot of turnover for eight or nine years. Then, you know, things happen. People start to retire. People start to move around. But the, the turnover and the change is a good thing. Yeah. Oh, it is. You got a nice mix now of experience and, and yeah. hard charging new people. I think it's great. Yeah, it really is. Any other questions for uh, Mr. Mike? Mike, one last question. You mentioned P-Surge, the probabilistic surge forecasting. Is that available online? How can people find that? There is some information that's available through the, the Meteorological Development Lab webpage, has some of the P-Surge output available on it, but we try to steer folks towards more of the, 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 the inundation graphic, which shows the reasonable worst case scenario. That's based on P-Surge, and you can find that on hurricanes.gov and then the storm surge watch warning. Thanks, Mike.
Yep. Terrific. Gentlemen, great questions. Let me ask the, the last question. Let me start by congratulating you on the new position. Um, we haven't done that yet, and we've got a couple of comments saying congratulations, well-deserved. Uh, my final question is, what about this job was appealing to you that made you want to to do this? Because uh, there's a just a little bit of a sleepless night uh, time ahead of you. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think the big part that appeals to me is the engagement and the communication aspect of it. You know, we've seen the forecast improve. We've seen made improvements in products and communication. But I think that communicating the hazards is something I really want to focus on going forward. And I really enjoy the engagement, the sort of high level strategic vision of, you know, where are we going to take the hurricane program in the next five to 10 years and want to, you know, want to, you know, want to lead, lead this group of people forward at the hurricane center and elsewhere in the weather service to, to really improve our products and services across the board. So that's, that's sort of what I'm most excited about, you know, heading into the future. So what's your message for folks watching at home today as we get ready to start a new hurricane season uh, just in a couple of weeks? There will be hurricanes, so we have to prepare and plan as if you're going to be affected by one every year, regardless of what a seasonal forecast might say, regardless of whether El Nino is happening or not. Uh, it, it all goes back to that preparedness message, which we're always hitting this time of year. Um, know if you live in an evacuation zone, uh, get that hurricane plan in place now so that you're not trying to put it in place when a storm threatens. Great message. Thank you, Dr. Mike Brennan. Thanks for being our guest today. We really appreciate it. And again, congratulations on the new gig. It's going to be a, a busy year ahead. I have a funny feeling. Thanks so much. We appreciate it. Uh, Dr. Hal Needham, thanks. Good to have you along, buddy. And glad that you're part of this program once again. Thanks so much. It was a great broadcast today. Good stuff. Bill Reed, thanks for being part of it as always. Great job. Great questions. Great insight, Bill. So glad to have you here. Yep. There's one thing, one, one mention, one thing we schedule in the middle of the show now uh, where I give an update on the tropics, which will occur as we go along. We were, had such an interesting discussion, and there's absolutely nothing to show at this stage of the game in Easter, either the Atlantic or Eastern Pacific. But that's what'll how it'll transpire in future shows when the uh, tropics get active again. And we'll be here every Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. There's one or two weeks where the time's going to fluctuate a little bit because of availability of our presenters. Next week, it's Dan Brown will be with us. Also, Roy Wright from IBHS. Another great program next week. That's Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. So once again, thanks to our sponsors, USAA, the South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau, uh, the Weather Company, Weather Boy, Black Magic Design, Whataburger, the Port of Brownsville, all folks who make this event a possibility. Thank you all for being with us today. Thanks to all our viewers, and we'll see you next week, 10 a.m. on Wednesday Central Time. Until then, have a good week. We hope you enjoyed this episode of NTWC Live Hurricane Center Podcast. If you did, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. And join us next week. This is NTWC Live.